Over the last few weeks, we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament book of Acts. And today, we're coming for our scripture reading to Acts chapter 15. And so, if you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Acts chapter 15 as we read together verses 1 through 11. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. I suspect most of us from time to time have received either a new phone, a new laptop, a smartphone, or we, if you remember what it was like setting up email for the first time, it can be a little awkward. Now, some of us thrive in the midst of new technology. We just delight in it. We can't wait to learn new things. And others of it find it oh, more than a little painful. And when someone sent me an email this past week and attached the following image, I thought it was worth sharing. And here is a young girl advising her grandmother and saying, Grandma, it's not that hard. Go into settings select Wi-Fi, select it, tap it with your finger, any finger, oh, and she's getting frustrated with her grandmother. And a number of us will know exactly how that feels. It's not just with technology, we have questions. When we come to Acts chapter 15, it is the central passage in the book of Acts. And it's central not just in terms of its placement or location. It is central in its theological focus. Because the question that lies at the very center of Acts 15 not only highlights 
for us. The very essence of the gospel. What is it that defines the gospel? It is the central question that impacts and shapes the rest of the book of Acts and, in fact, the New Testament. And so that's why it's important, as we are going to do this morning, to spend time in Acts chapter 15. The main question that dominates this chapter is this, what is the center of the gospel? What is it that is the very essence of the salvation of God? And it's right here in Acts chapter 15. When Acts was written, it was written looking back on all that God had been doing since Pentecost. And Pentecost was a game changer for everyone. Because back here in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would anoint an individual for a period or a season or a particular project. But in the New Testament, from Pentecost onwards, everything changed. Because even during the gospel period, when people would hear Christ preach, they would see the impact of the gospel, they would watch his miracles, even his death and subsequent resurrection, they had an emotional and an intelligent awareness of what had actually occurred. But when Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes not just simply to anoint for a season, not for a period, but He comes to indwell the heart and soul and mind of individual people. And that's why it was a game changer. It was utterly revolutionary in every sense. No longer had the Christian simply an emotional or intellectual awareness, but your life was transformed, and the Holy Spirit was now dwelling within, equipping and enabling you to live out your faith day by day by day. And that's what happened in the early chapter of Acts. Now, as you get on further into Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, persecution breaks out, and many of the disciples in and around Jerusalem area, and we saw it over the last couple of weeks, if you remember your map, they moved north to Antioch, and then west into Asia Minor, and Antioch over there in what we call modern-day Turkey. And if you remember, we talked about the two Antiochs. Now, Luke, when he's writing Acts, gives us from time to time summary paragraphs or summary sentences, and he, of course, summarizes or crystallizes in short, bite-sized chunks what God was doing. And several times he said, large numbers were coming to the Lord. Now, of course, we would say, how wonderful that is, and it is utterly spectacular. But please remember this. The people who had a Jewish background going back in looking at and living under the Old Testament saw God at work in spectacular fashion and said, all these new people who have been impacted by the gospel, who've had their life transformed, ah, 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 don't forget the Old Testament. Don't write it off. God was very much at work during eternity past. And in fact, they would say this, did He not call us as God's chosen people? 
Did he not give to us a promised land? Did he not take us out of bondage and slavery and Egypt, give us the Ten Commandments, establish us as a people, and he's been leading and guiding and directing since. And those of you who have come to the party late in that sense have to follow the law of Moses. And the new believers up here in Antioch and in Asia Minor were saying, wait a minute, what we have found is this, that the love and grace of God comes to us through the gospel. It is very hard for us to love dietary restrictions and feast days and festivals. Sure, we can be fond of them. Sure, we recognize God was at work in the past, but we don't think we need to live in and under Old Testament religious observance. And that was attention. And so by the time you come to Acts 15, look at the passage with me. And Luke records, some men came down from Judea to Antioch. In other words, they were coming from Jerusalem and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. And just in case you've missed the significance of what we've said so far, please understand this. The question uppermost in the mind of these new believers was this. Is the death of Christ at Calvary sufficient for my eternal salvation? Or is there something else I must do? And you notice this group who were called the party of the Pharisees, they said in verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So imagine now we're in the 21st century. And there are two popular misunderstandings of the gospel in a 21st century cultural context. And the first misunderstanding is this. Do we believe the gospel? Absolutely. Is faith in Christ what is needed? Yes. But from time to time, I will hear people say there is something else to be added. In other words, is the gospel sufficient? Yes. But I need to add church membership. I need to add attendance at Sunday school. I need to add serving as an elder, serving as a deacon, singing in the choir. And so we're back to the first century and asking, is faith in Christ alone sufficient for our salvation? Or do we need to add something and something else and something else and something else? And the Scripture teaches us again and again and again and again that the grace of God found in the Gospels alone. His love and His mercy and His forgiveness is more than sufficient for your salvation. And so, when you do attend church, you do serve as an elder, you do serve as a deacon, these are things you do out of thanksgiving and gratitude. We 
don't serve in order to add to our salvation. We serve because of our salvation. Do you get the point? Because it's so easy to make that which was primary secondary and that which is secondary primary. And so folks are trusting in their church membership. They are trusting in their service. They're trusting in their attendance to bring them into a saving relationship with Christ. When the Scripture teaches what? That submitting and surrendering your life to Him and to Him alone is sufficient to seek forgiveness, to live for Him each day is the natural outcome of submitting and surrendering your life to Christ. So it's not Christ plus, it is Christ alone. Now, that's the first popular misunderstanding. And let's go back to the first century again. Forgive me, we're jumping across the centuries here. Go to verse 11, where Peter is speaking, and he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And he's making the point about the Gentiles and those with a Jewish background. It is the grace of God alone that enables us to respond to Him, and Calvary was sufficient for our eternal salvation. Now, having said all of that, and that is a gospel plus, and I've made that point. The other popular misunderstanding is this. It's a gospel minus. Now, let me explain that, and I need you to use your imagination. Imagine you have a good and close friend, someone whom you're very fond of, someone you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with, and you could talk for two hours, and it feels like five minutes. And you begin to talk about church things, and you both hold each other in the highest possible regard, and he says to you, tell me a little more about your faith. And you begin to explain who Christ is, the impact He's had in your life, why you seek to follow Him in every area of your life. And then you ask Him and you say, now tell me a little about your own faith. Where is Jesus in terms of your own understanding of salvation? And he goes on to say, well, I hold in great affection what Jesus taught. I think he was a spectacular teacher. No one else has ever had the influence or the impact he has had. I think he was a perfect example of a life well lived. And then you begin to probe a little deeper. And you begin to ask him about the birth of Christ, and His life, and His ministry, and His miracles, and His death, and His resurrection, and His ascension, and His coming again. All of the things we would hold to be true as reflected in the Apostles' Creed, for example. Your friend somewhat sheepishly looks at you and says, well, I'm not so sure about the miracles and I'm not so sure about a virgin birth, and I'm not so sure about 
the cross, I think that was quite simply political jealousy and something of an accident. And as for Easter Sunday, well, I tend to see it in a symbolic sense. It's, it, it's a motif that good will inevitably come out of bad. And what you get there is a gospel minus. A gospel minus the miracles. A gospel minus the cross. A gospel minus Easter Sunday. A gospel minus a need for repentance and a trust in the love and grace of God. And so on one side you have a gospel plus, and on the other side you have a gospel minus. Acts 15 is crystal clear. Faith in Christ and Christ alone because of His work at Calvary is more than sufficient. Now, before we go any further, some of you, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, are already saying, well, Richard, I've been trying to follow closely. I think I'm there. But tell me again about the Old Testament. Do we not believe the Old Testament? Do we just say that it's neither here nor there, and in fact, we're slightly embarrassed by it? We don't really want to focus there, so we'll just kind of move on. No, we're saying the opposite. We're saying that God in eternity past in the Old Testament promised that a day would come when a Messiah would come and would suffer and die for our sins. And folks in the Old Testament looked forward to Calvary, and folks in subsequent centuries looked back to Calvary. And in terms of Old Testament religious observance and rules and regulations, why don't we follow them today? Why don't we only eat kosher foods as our Jewish colleagues do? Why don't we celebrate the feast days and the festivals and sacrifice animals in the temple? Simply for this reason, that Old Testament religious observance was done as a devotional sacrifice to God. But at Calvary, the sacrifice was unique and supreme and all-sufficient, and there is no longer need for sacrifice because you cannot improve on perfection. That's why we no longer live under Old Testament religious observance, because it is complete and complete in Christ. And that's why Verse 19, and we didn't read it in the passage, but follow with me, please, if you would, Acts 15, 19, and jump down. And as I said earlier, this is James, the Lord's brother, speaking, and he said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And James is saying this, there is no need for religious rules and observance and regulations and dietary restrictions, etc., 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 because Christ and Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation. Both last Sunday and again this morning, we've been touching on the nature of faith and faith is what? It is when we trust Christ to forgive 
forgive our sins. We hand over and submit and surrender our life to Him when we realize the gravitas and the heinous nature of our own sin, not the sin of the world, bad as it is, but our own personal sin, then He brings forgiveness. Then He brings transformation. Then He draws us into a relationship with Himself. That is a picture of what the Scriptures talk about when they talk about faith. Let me ask you to use your imagination again. And imagine you have a good and close friend, and your friend kind of says to you, now, I know you go to church, I know you have a faith, but quite honestly, isn't that whole faith thing a little overblown? Don't you think that faith is something we created? Don't you think it's a little delusional to think about pie in the sky when you die and some benevolent kind of grandfather figure? Isn't that a little delusional? Well, often what is meant when someone says that is this, that to be delusional is to deceive the mind or to cause that which is false to be accepted as true. So, when someone says to you, isn't your faith a little delusional? Isn't it just a simple projection of our own wishful thinking that when things are not going so well, we find comfort and solace in prayer? When we find ourselves at a funeral, it's just a nice thing to say in the hope that somehow there is a hereafter. It's something we have created, we have invented as humanity in order for it to give us some sense of comfort. And our response as Christians ought to be this. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Faith is delusional if God does not exist. But what if we believe millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people down through the centuries who will talk to you about a genuine, authentic, living faith? They will talk to you about coming to an adult, as an adult, coming to faith in Christ. They will talk to you about the experience that they have that when they pray, He answers their prayer, that He leads and guides and directs their daily life, that they talk to Him, they feel His presence. When they study His Word, it comes to life. Is that evidence just to be dismissed? And then you would be quite right to turn the tables and say, perhaps it's atheism that is deluded. Perhaps it's atheism that likes to deceive the mind or to cause that which is false to be accepted as true, because there's a lot of comfort and solace if you never have to face God, be accountable for your sin, or explain to Him how you have lived your life. And it's so much easier just to dismiss Him than it is to respond to His love and His grace, to seek His forgiveness, and to ask Him into your life and transform that life.
Folks, let me wrap up this morning with these two thoughts. Number one, is Christ sufficient and his death on the cross sufficient for our eternal salvation beyond question? And so it is in Christ and Christ alone our hope is found, not in religious observance, not in church membership, not in singing in a choir, serving as an elder, but in Christ and Christ alone. That's where our hope and faith is. And finally, not only is He all-sufficient as a Savior, He is all-sufficient when we find ourselves going through some of the darkest days of our existence, when things are not going well, and it seems as if it's one thing after another, after another, after another, and days are darker than a thousand midnights. He is still sufficient then. Then he can be trusted. Then he can be relied on. Then he can be depended to see you through, and he will not abandon you, and he will not give up on you, because he is sufficient for your every need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Help us, please, in the course of this coming week to trust in you again, to focus on you once more, to trust you for all that lies before us and to give thanks and honor and glory that you are all sufficient for us. Father, thank you for your incredible eternal love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.